Okay, turn with me in your Bible to uh, Romans chapter 4. I just want to take uh, a week or two and talk about uh, the gift of righteousness, the free gift of righteousness. I've said often that if a word or a passage or text in the Bible is cliche to us, it's a good indicator that we don't actually have revelation of that word or that phrase or that passage. If, in other words, if you, ha- if you read the word, you read the, the phrase, the passage, and it just doesn't, it doesn't impact your soul with wonder, it's a good indication we don't have a lot of revelation on it. It's just become cliche because the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's supposed to pierce us and cause wonder and, and, and light to come alive in us. And so when, when we approach the word, if there's any feature of it that that doesn't impact us, it's likely we don't have revelation of it. And so, uh, you know, we try to teach, we, obviously the, 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 the subject of the scripture is so vast, we teach it in portions, we teach it in bite-sized, uh, you know, portions that we're able to digest, and sometimes we miss the whole story. We miss the storyline of all creation, which is this, that God, who is love, created humanity to love. He created us to be loved. And from there we get the picture of this relationship he had with Adam and Eve that was forfeited through sin. And then we see God choosing a people Israel from the, all the nations of the earth through this man Abraham. We see that he makes a covenant which is really a marital style covenant with them in Exodus 19. And we see that they uh, reject that covenant. And so then from that nation God brings a savior Of that nation and all of mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh. And to pay for the treason of the covenant, to pay for the rebellion of humankind, God becomes a man and dies as as the payment and the penalty of humankind's sin to do what? To reconcile us back to God. So that then we can live in relationship with God as God intended as the object of his affection forever. I mean, that's, you know, that's the most rough, dirty, short explanation. But we, we, we compartmentalize and we teach in, in, uh, in packages and in compartments so much that sometimes we miss the broader storyline. And so then when we throw a term out there like righteousness and we say, okay, we're going to talk about the righteousness of God or the free gift of righteousness, you just sort of lose it. You know, you lose the significance of it uh, in the broader picture, this issue of righteousness is a massive, massive issue. It's, it's way broader than I could touch in a couple weeks. But I just wanted to throw it out there because there's, there is a place that the Lord wants us to uh, come to. It's called confidence in love. Being confident in love before him. Understanding his vast affections for us and standing cleansed by the blood of Jesus uh, confident before him as heirs and co-heirs with Christ and ambassadors of Christ in the earth. There's a, there's a whole uh, uh, lack of understanding of who we are as those who have been bought with the price. We're not our own, and, and we stand clothed in the very righteousness of God in this earth. We, we lose much. We, we miss much because we don't comprehend the, the uh, incredible gift, this free gift of righteousness and what it's actually all about. So I want to talk about it, and I, I want to make sure we've got the backdrop of the storyline. God 
bringing men to himself because of love and desire. He doesn't need us, but he wants us bad. Oh, I love that. And so with that as the backdrop, let's approach this issue of righteousness. The last thing I'd want to do is touch the issue of righteousness without it having the devotional feature that it's supposed to have to our soul. It's supposed to touch our soul and just make you go, oh my goodness. But instead, I think we've taught it technically often. And because we've taught it technically, we've taught it theologically and technically, we've lost the wonder of what this thing is, uh, what the scripture is talking about with this thing called the free gift of righteousness. And so I want to just have that as our backdrop as we're launching into this, uh, this conversation for the next few minutes. So Romans 3.10, familiar scripture. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one person is righteous. There's not a human who can claim righteousness, which is, you know, the state of being holy, the state of living right, the the state of of, uh, being pure. You know, that term righteous, you can get lost. You can miss the definition. It's, in a sense, it's it's actually wearing the very beauty of holiness and and living that very beauty, that that you're living purely, you're, you're living cleanly, you're living rightly, uh, as God defines rightly, the state of being holy, the manifestation of holiness upon an individual's righteousness. We have righteous living, and then we have imputed righteousness. In other words, righteous living are the choices that we make. We choose to be righteous. We choose to say no to sin and say yes to God. And then we have imputed righteousness, which simply means this, that it's accredited to us. God has given us the credit for being righteous, even though we've done nothing to deserve it, to earn it, or to prove that we are such. In fact, even after we sin, we are still credited with righteousness, which is one of the craziest thoughts, one of the most stunning thoughts that the scripture actually provides for us and that Christ actually provided for us in the cross. So Romans 3.10 says this, there's none righteous. There's nobody righteous. No human is righteous. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Not one person has been able to uh, keep the standard of righteousness and live righteously. Every person has sinned. Most people don't have a problem with that. Uh, there are many that do. Many think, well, I, I, I'm not, I don't deserve anything you know, I don't deserve death. I, I don't deserve hell. I, I'm just as good as the next guy. And, and many men will claim their own righteousness. See, on the one hand, you have people full of arrogance in that they say, uh, I, I'm not, you know, I've not done anything worthy of, of death. I, I, I'm, I'm just as good as the next guy. And they measure themselves by themselves and they're not wise, the scripture says. But on the other hand, you have a lot of folks that they say, well, I'm so unrighteous, I'm so unworthy, they're shame-laden, and they don't ever come out of that, that mentality of shame to actually step into this free gift of righteousness and all the implications of it. And the power of the free gift of righteousness, when it, when it impacts the soul, it changes your entire paradigm. I tell you, the more, <laughs> the more that I read the Scripture, the more... That the old constructs of religiously approaching, technically approaching the the word, it just falls apart. Because this concept of righteousness and the imputed righteousness that we have in Christ, that Jesus bought through the cross, it's such 
a tender subject. It's so precious. It's so beautiful. So life-giving. If it's lost beneath theological rhetoric and technical terms, oh, beloved, we've got to get that junk out of the way and get the truth of it and get, get it uh, revealed to our heart what this is all about. So Romans 3.10, there's none righteous. There's none righteous, not one. No human being that has uh, lived the standard of righteousness, not one. We've all sinned. But then 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes this crazy statement. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Those two incredible thoughts. There's not one righteous. We're all sinners. We're all unrighteous by nature and by deed, yet he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in Christ. We get the very righteousness of God and we've done nothing to earn it. We get the very righteousness of God and we can't live it. We would fail every single time. We get the very righteousness of God and our performance... Our persona, everything about us says we are not righteous, but God gifts us righteousness by Christ. Beloved, this isn't something that we work to attain. This is something that's been imputed, the scripture says. It means it's been accredited. It's been given to you. You have been reckoned righteous. This is a massive subject. Huge thoughts. To consider yourself the very righteousness of God. How much of a leap do you have to make in your mind from the way you consider yourself right now to seeing yourself as the righteousness of God? I think most of us, we consider ourselves exceedingly unworthy. And there's truth to that. We are unworthy. But we see ourselves through that lens of unrighteousness rather than through the truth of the Scripture. And so Paul, he does an amazing job in Romans to explain imputed righteousness and what this is all about. In chapter 3, he explains in a detailed way that nobody becomes righteous by living the law. In other words, keeping the law of commandments. No one can do that. Every person who's set out to keep the law has proven their own unrighteousness, and that's what Paul lays out in Romans 3. In Galatians, Paul goes on to explain to us That the law, the purpose for the law, talking about the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, the purpose for the law was to be a tutor to bring us to Christ. In other words, 
Paul said, without the law, he goes, I didn't know that I had sin. But when I, when I saw the law, I realized, man, i am totally got sin. I, there's nothing right in me. Because I've got major league issues, and so does all humankind. So he said, the law is a tutor. It's an instructor that makes us aware of our need for a Savior. That's the point of the law. In the Old Testament, you see the Jews continuously rebelling, though God is offering them a, a free pass, a free platter. He goes, I've chosen you above all the other nations of the earth to be a, a royal priesthood, a, a, a special possession of my own. He says that in this 19. I've chosen you. He goes, I'm entering in covenant with you. He goes, simply obey what I command. Be faithful and obey what I say. And they, they say, we will. And then we know the outcome. They don't. Because that is the status of humankind. There's not one righteous among us. And so the law, the whole picture of the law, is to prove to us that we don't have the ability to be righteous without Christ. That's the point of the law. Jesus comes, and grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. That's what John 1 says. Grace and truth. And what the point of that is, is this, that God is now going to make a way for righteousness to come to people apart from their works. That's crazy. Because you and I, we live, and our whole society is predicated upon, if you do right, you're free. If you do right, if you, you keep the law, you're free. But if you break the law, you're in prison. And we see some that are free and some that are in prison. We see that in our society. But in, in Christ, all have broken the law. We're all in prison. But God comes, and he does this crazy thing called justification. He declares us all innocent. The declaration of innocence over humanity is called justification. And we're justified by faith. We're justified by faith, by simply believing. I did a series on Romans 5 several months ago. I would encourage you, if you haven't uh, heard uh, uh, about justification very much, go to that series on our, on our podcast. Listen to it. It's called Glory Through Tribulations. And I, and I go through the doctrine of justification, and it's, it's such a beautiful thing that God comes to the sinner, the one that's in jail, the one that's guilty, and he comes to us in Christ, and he says, you're free. You're free. Well, more than that, what we get in Romans 4 is the explanation, not simply of our freedom, our justification, but we get an explanation of uh, what the scripture calls imputed righteousness, or the free gift of righteousness. And here's how it's broken down in Romans 4. Let's just begin to work through this. And, and this is such a powerful revelation to the heart, it will cause you to live in a different manner when you comprehend what has actually happened to you in Christ. Romans 4, let's just begin to read, we're going to kind of Bible study this a little bit this morning. But verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? This is an incredibly important phrase. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Beloved, this is where the whole issue stems. This is the kernel of understanding we've got to get that righteousness in the New Testament is as an issue, it is an issue of faith. If you believe what Jesus did on the cross, God accounts that belief to you as righteousness. That is a massively crazy thought. All I have to do is believe that the cross was effectual, that it actually did what God says it does. All I have to do is believe that Jesus' blood was righteous and holy, that he was a perfect sacrifice, and that it not only causes me to be innocent, but actually causes me to receive his very righteousness. If I believe that, I am righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, imputed to him, accredited to him for righteousness. He believed what God said, and he was uh, given the righteousness of God. And so, in verse 4, Paul explains the difference. He goes, now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That's an interesting little sentence, but it simply means this. If you and I believe that we can work our way into good standing with God, if you and I believe that we can do enough works to where God will finally accept us, then we are putting ourselves in position to say, God owes us salvation. He goes, to him who works, the wages aren't counted as grace. Grace is God giving it to us because he's kind. He goes, if you're working for it, you're not, you're not receiving it by grace. You're working for it. You're thinking. You're putting yourself in a position to say to God, you owe me righteousness. Now, who would do that? Nobody. None of us would say, if I do right enough, God has to call me righteous. Yet, when we live with a performance mentality, not comprehending the free gift of grace and the free gift of righteousness, working, 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 always trying to please God through our performance, we're doing the very thing that none of us would dare do. We're actually saying, by my works, God's going to owe this to me. To him who works, the wages aren't counted as grace. They're counted as debt. See, the guy that works, if you're, if you're a business owner, if a guy works for you, that guy turns around and goes, Pay me. You see what I'm saying? It's the same in Christ. If you say, I'm working for God, I'm working for God, I'm working for God. God, you owe me. You have the same mentality, a works mentality, trying to gain righteousness by working for God. Beloved, we don't work for God to gain our righteousness. He's already given it to us freely in Christ. Oh my gosh. That's just crazy. Yeah, that's why the sinner, murderer, hater of God gets pierced with the gospel, repents of his sin, his murderous ways, and his hatred of God, repents, turns away from it, turns to God, and in one instant of saying, I believe in Jesus who shed his blood for me, I confess him as my Lord, in that one instant, 
boom, something supernatural happens. Not only is the one who's completely guilty declared completely innocent, that one who's completely guilty is declared righteous, holy, pure. Not by works. If that guy had to work off his sin, he couldn't. And what I'm shocked about is my own propensity, and I think many of ours, to actually do our Christianity by works rather than by faith. When you believe that uh, your, your weaknesses and your sins actually, uh, uh, how do I say it, cancel out your standing in Christ. In other words, uh, of course, we have to repent of sin, but, but oftentimes what will happen is this. When you sin, you immediately think you're back to zero with God. It's like all the work of the cross has been null and void by the one sin. And that's completely false. There's been a free gift of righteousness imparted. Now, if you continue going on th- sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for sins. You, you cut off that after sinning willfully continuously. But for most believers, you're saying, yes, Jesus, I love you, I love you, you're my Lord. And you step into sin, and what happens is you get pricked in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And you go, oh, no, I don't want that. I want you, God. And we turn back to God. And oftentimes when we turn back to God, we go, now, how can I pay you back for that sin that I just committed? We put ourselves in purgatory. We put ourselves in the doghouse. We try to figure out how to pay God off, how to work off our debt. Just like you couldn't work off the debt of sin before you're a believer, you can't work off the debt of sin after being a believer. There's a free gift of righteousness. It's by faith. We turn back to God, we repent, we say, God, I'm sorry, I didn't want to do that. He goes, absolutely, come on in. And we think, you know, he's up there going, now, here's what you're going to have to do. You have to run a few laps, a few push-ups, work out real hard. Show me that you really mean it. Here's your new holiness regimen. God goes, no, come on back. I love you. My son's blood paid for it all. And we, we come back so often in shame, laden with a, 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 a vantage point of our sin and not uh, with a vantage point of the cross and the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross that gave us righteousness. To him who works... The wages aren't counted as grace, but as a debt. Beloved, there is no work that you can do to attain righteousness. It's by faith. Now look at verse 5. Oh, the glory of this. And then David, David had it beforehand in Psalm 32. He's going to quote Psalm 32. He says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, Notice how Paul juxtaposes faith and works. Him who does not work but believes. In other words, faith is not a work to Paul. Faith is faith and works are works. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. His faith is accounted for righteousness. That, beloved, is a stunning, stunning idea. Your faith today in Jesus 
is accounted to you for righteousness. That puts our position with God and our position in this world in a completely different zone than most of us walk in. Your faith is accounted for righteousness. It's accounted for righteousness. The fact that you believe in God who declares the guilty innocent, the fact that you believe in Jesus, God in the flesh, who shed his blood for our sin to to cleanse us, the fact that you believe it, bam, there is a supernatural gift of righteousness that is imparted to you through that faith. You can't work for it. It's given. It's free. And oh, the sweetness of that. God didn't want people walking around shame-laden trying to work off their sin. That wasn't the point of the cross. The point of the cross wasn't so that you and I would walk around trying to prove to God our sincerity through our works. Or trying to work off our, our, the, the shame of our sin through trying to, you know, do all sorts of things to get God's attention. That wasn't the point of the cross. The point of the cross was that God would definitively and finally in one act of divine sacrifice, he would completely and fully deal with the issue of sin and unrighteousness in one fell swoop. He does it through the cross and you and I who believe, we actually get imparted, imputed to us the righteousness of God. So the question becomes, what do you feel like when you stand before the Lord? What do you feel like when you go in and out before God? Are you more cognizant of your weaknesses or are you more cognizant of the free gift of righteousness? Because here's where it goes. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. And then he goes, and therefore glorify God in your body. So because you comprehend that you've been bought, because you comprehend the free gift of righteousness, because you comprehend that he owns you, it's from there that we choose to live rightly, not as a payment, but as a pleasure. Not to pay him back for what he's done, but because he, you wanted me, you, you wanted me. He goes, I so did. I bought you. I chose you and purchased you. You're the one I wanted. I purchased you. You own me. Yes, I own you. From there I go, okay, I'm not my own. I'm yours. I'm yours. This is good. This is good news. I'm not mine. I'm not the one that's my own God. You're my God. You're the one that owns me. You're saying I'm righteous. This is easy. Why would I fumble that gift through, through unrighteous living? Why would I stray from what you've given me? Why would I walk out of the palace and into the, the pigsty when you have seated me in the palace? You've bought me. David, verse 6, it says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. God accredits him righteousness apart from works. David said that man that that happens for, that man is blessed. It's Psalm 32 that he's quoting here. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
David, seeing ahead prophetically, sees the free gift of righteousness imputed to those that would believe in the same manner as Abraham. Beloved, every one of us, every one of us has had a chasm between us and God because of sin. Anybody that thinks that, that that's not true, they, they're just, they've missed the issue of sin. We need to preach sin as, as what it is. It's deadly and it produces death. Every one of us has, has willfully chosen sin and separated ourselves forever from God without the hope of working our way back. And that's what Paul is illustrating in Romans 3. We cannot work our way back. But when we believe in Jesus' blood on the cross, a supernatural transaction takes place. You can't gain it through working. You gain it only by believing. You believe that Jesus' blood justifies, proclaims innocent the guilty, and furthermore, that he's, he imputes righteousness to the one who's wicked. You're com- you know, 30 seconds earlier, you're completely in sin, totally filthy, hate God, and there is, you don't believe in any sacrifice for sin. You get born again, and bam, a supernatural transaction takes place, and God imputes righteousness. Now here's the thing. Because we don't comprehend exactly what that means, what righteousness being imputed really means. We got, that's good. Glad I'm righteous. That's good. And it doesn't move us. We just go, okay, now I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. And here's what happens. Paul, in Romans 4, what he does in, in, in verse 9 through, through 16 is he illustrates how Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him through, for, for righteousness. And then in, in in verse 17, in, in, in verse 9 through 16, he says, it was while he was, before he was circumcised, so he became the father of faith to, to the Gentiles and the Jews. And so he explains that everybody that is believing is, is a part of the heir. He's a, a, an heir of Abraham according to faith. In verse 17, he goes on with it, and he explains that Abraham went through that journey of faith, not just for his own sake, but for ours. Let's pick it up in verse 17. As it is written, what God said to Abraham, because I've made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And in the margin of my Bible, I have a bracket around 17, verse 17 through 21. And out there on the side, I've got written the principle of faith. You believe before you see. God who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This, beloved, is the principle of faith. You believe before you see it. I know that sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. Faith, you believe before you see it. It takes the God who is able, and faith says he's not simply able, he is producing it he's the god who does it it's not just believing that god has the ability to do a thing it's actually believing god is doing the thing you're believing it before you see it that is the principle of faith 
Abraham believed. The Bible says this, his body was dead. I'm I'm not going to go into a physiology lesson here, but the man's body was dead and his wife's womb was dead. That's what the scripture says. And he believed God that there was a baby that was going to come out of his body and out of her womb. He believed it when? After he saw the baby? Before. It's the principle of faith. So God gives us Abraham's journey. He said it was, it was uh, before he was circumcised, and so it's for the Gentiles and for the Jews. And then he gives us this, this nugget of, of how it works, the essence of faith, and then how it's for us. So let's just keep going. It says, who contrary to hope, in hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. In other words, your descendants shall be many nations. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, look at this, he did not consider his own body already dead. Since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. I just want to give a little parenthesis right there. If you actually read the story, you find that Sarah was laughing at one point. Abraham was laughing at one point. I love the way that God revises it because Abraham finally came to faith, but the journey was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) What are you talking about, God? Okay, finally he believes. You go, see, he didn't waver. I go, I don't know. There's a little laughter in there. It's kind of wavering. God goes, no, he didn't waver in unbelief. What he means is he didn't waver, get off in unbelief unto thwarting the promise. The journey of faith might be this. You're believing, you're not believing, you're believing, you're not believing, you believe. You might go back and forth. You might have to wrestle with your mind. You might have to go through challenges. But when you hang on to the promise, believing what you don't see, that's the essence of faith. And in the end, God says he didn't waver into unbelief. But he believed those things which God said, and he, and he saw through, and he saw the promise to come, back, come to pass. He did not waver the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Look at verse 21. I love it how God says this. Being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And there it is, verse 22. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Just believing was accounted to him for righteousness. I tell you, if believers could get out from under trying to work to attain righteousness and begin to believe that the blood of Jesus has purchased righteousness and our faith in that imputes that very righteousness to us, we would see ourselves completely different. And it wouldn't be this, you know, sometimes I see this cocky kind of, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, and this kind of cocky, arrogant. It wouldn't be that. It would be this with holy fear and reverence going, oh my gosh, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. He's actually clothed me with righteousness. Oh my gosh, how good is this? How good is this? That's why the writer of Hebrews says, therefore we boldly come to the throne of grace. Receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Why? The only person that can go into the throne room of the king is one that knows they're welcome in there. Come on. The one who knows they're welcome has got to be the one that's clothed in righteousness. He says, boldly go in. Boldly go in. You have been imputed with the very righteousness of God. Who are you today? Think about this now. 
Who are you in the earth? See, Christianity, it wasn't ever supposed to be this thing where we just go hear a word, go home, on, and we live, you know, Monday through Saturday our own way and go and come back, take up a space in a pew, pluck a dollar in the offering, go back home after hearing a thing and, and just live any old way or just with just some kind of Sunday church attendance relationship. We're ones who believe in the shed blood of God. The implications of that are vast. You've been not only just set free from prison, declared innocent, you've now been clothed with robes of righteousness. The picture of the prodigal son, man, he puts the ring on him. He puts the robe on him. He changes his garments. Beloved, you and I are standing in the world as ambassadors for Christ. Well, no joke, we've got the very righteousness of God on us. That changes the way that we should think about our prayer life when we go in and out of the throne room and when we go in and out of any place with people in it. Because now I'm not going in there assuming it's just trying to sort of measure up and I'm just so bad and ugh. But I'm going in there as someone that God has said, I have clothed you with my very own righteousness, not because you've worked for it, because I've given it to you by faith. See how that yanks the rug out of the arrogance, but it also creates boldness with a grateful heart? See, it's to have a grateful heart that's seated in love, that's bold, not in our ability, but in God's provision. And as we understand who we are, what he's done for us in the cross, man, it changes the way that we live in this world. Changes the way that we, we conduct our lives. It changes the way that we run our families. It changes the way that we operate at work. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm his. And he's clothed me in his robes. Of course, I'm going to live righteous because this is the greatest thing ever. He did for me what I could have never done. The righteousness of God in Christ. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now look at this. This is awesome. Verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed, imputed to him. Imputed. And, and just right there in my, in my margin, I've just written attributed. It's the same idea. He attributes it to you. He, he gifts it. He grants it to you. You become that. Not by earning it. It was not written for his sake alone that it was accredited, attributed, imputed to him, but also for us. God's giving us the pattern of how it works. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised Because of our justification or for our justification. Here's the point. God gives us the whole story in Romans 4 about Abraham so that you and I would actually believe that when we believe, it's imputed to us. This is massive. Because if I actually believe That righteousness is imputed to me. 
I don't have to work for it anymore. I, I don't have to, to perform to try to get God to like me. I, I don't have to figure out my faith by, by you know, how much I can show God that I'm, I'm legitimate and sincere. I believe revelation of righteousness hits my heart and from there, obviously I'm going to live that way because that's who I am. God is not about going, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're wicked, now try to live righteously. He goes, no, I made you righteous. I loved you and wanted you. I made you righteous. And he calls those things that be not as though they are. I made you righteous. We mean you go, but, but, but. He goes, you're righteous by the blood of my son. But I did, he, I, I, he goes, I've given it to you. But you don't know how bad. He goes, I totally know how bad. Really do. He goes, that's what the cross was for. And so then James, he goes, of course then. Of course, if you believe you have works. He goes, don't try this, I believe I'm the righteousness of God, and you live like the devil. He goes, of course, if you believe, your works will show it. But he's talking about revelation to the heart that causes somebody to comprehend, I am the righteousness of God, I've been justified by faith, therefore, oh, I'm his, he owns me, of course I'm going to live rightly. He's talking about the heart compelled by love that shows forth good works in a, with, with gratitude. Those works come out of the revelation that you're the righteousness of God in Christ. Not to attain it. You can't work to attain righteousness. And so I just love it. That verse, I've been, I've been saying it Multiple times, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Look at that. God became a man and God became sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. (laughs) He became sin for us. Jesus Christ became sin for us. Jesus Christ became sin for us. Oh, come on. All of my lies, all of my rebellion, all of my tantrums, all of my outbursts of wrath, all of my impurity, my immorality, all of that stuff, Jesus became that. Come on, go down the list. All of the junk of me. Uh, he made him who no sin to be sin. Go down your list. He, get, he took all of that and he took it all for you and put it on him. Now multiply it by the untold billions. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You get it? We're not supposed to walk around shame laden. 
The cross was about a massive exchange. You and me and our filthiness. God transposes it. God takes it from us and puts it onto him. He takes the, the righteousness of Christ, the one who knew no sin, and he imputes it to us. The great exchange. If we walk in revelation of that, see, it's not enough just to sort of comprehend what the technicalities of it are, but it's walking in the revelation of the free gift of righteousness. Your prayer life goes through the roof. Your gratefulness goes through the roof. Your intimacy with God goes through the roof because you go, oh my gosh, I'm not sort of trying to earn your favor. I've got your favor. I'm not trying to earn my way into the throne room. I've been given entrance into the throne room. I'm not trying to earn my way to get all the blessing of the kingdom. I have been given the kingdom. <laughs> and we stay in the, the, with a grateful heart in revelation of this massive exchange. And from there, we don't try to work, 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 work to get God to like us. We actually live it out in revelation of, of being the, the righteousness of God. Now, here's the thing. Paul gives it to us in a, in a theological, I mean, masterpiece. He breaks it down for us in a, a, a stunning theological treatise. But Isaiah gives it to us with prophetic, poetic language. So I'm just going to land with this. Turn over to Isaiah 62. He gives the description of what righteousness imputed to people looks like. And we know the Gospels to the Jew first and also to the Greek and also to the Gentile, that is. And so here's the explanation of imputed righteousness with, with poetic devotional language. Isaiah at the top of his game. God says, I'm not going to hold my peace until, for Zion's sake, until what? Her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The one who has been imputed with righteousness is burning and shining. Your righteousness is as brightness. Little parentheses, I remember one time I went to eat at this restaurant. And uh, the waiter came up, and, and they had some occultic symbols. It was one of those restaurants where you can wear uh, pins and stuff. And they had all these occultic symbols all over their, uh, their little waiter outfit. And I said to him, I said, uh, so, I guess you, you believe in, uh, and I named their thing Wicca, huh? So are you a witch? I just, I mean, when I see that junk, I usually just go right at it. I mean, come on. I'm not going to, you know, oh, no. And I just asked him, so you're a so you're witch? And he, and, he, and he said, yeah, I am. And I said, uh, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And the guy goes, I know. I go, well, how'd you know that? He goes, I saw you when you walked in the door. What do you mean? He goes, you have a bright aura of white light all around you. <laughs> I went kind of like, ooh, and cool. I go, what? what? Do all Christians have that? He goes, well, the good ones do. That's what he said to me, no lie. 
And I proceeded to tell him he needed to repent of his witchcraft and get right with God and repent of the false junk that he was in and the occultic powers and other things too. But um, we think this is figurative until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. You could only see what you look like in the spirit. You could only see what it means to be clothed with righteousness. You could only see what you look like in the spirit. Salvation goes forth. Her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Look, look at verse two. This is for Israel, but this is is what imputed righteousness looks like. The Gentiles... You could say it for, for us now. The lost shall see your righteousness in all kings, your glory, your glory. What's he talking about? Because I have no glory of myself. He's talking about the imputed glory that's resident upon believers. He's talking about the, the righteousness that's upon you. It's what he said earlier. He goes, arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen on you. All kings shall see your glory. You should be called by a new name. A crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. A royal diadem in the hand of God. I love how Isaiah says it. Paul gives us the technical theological explanation. And Isaiah gives us the prophetic, poetic, devotional language. Do you know what it means to be the righteousness of God? You're a diadem in his hand. You're burning with bright righteousness. You're a crown of glory. A crown of glory. No, not because you've done anything. Because he did everything. That's who we are, beloved, in Christ. That's that's what Paul is trying to explain to us in Romans 4. There's a free gift of righteousness that's been imputed to us. It's brilliant and beautifying and powerful and full of glory. And all that we would live day in and day out in revelation with a grateful heart. To him who works, the wages are counted as debt, not as grace. We can't work for this thing. We receive it by the free gift of grace. It's the free gift of righteousness. Such a difference. Such a difference. And see, when you see yourself as righteous, you'll actually live righteously. You'll actually live in accordance with what you've been with, with what's been imputed to you. You know, the king takes the the homeless person and he he brings him into the throne room into the royal palace cleans him up clothes him with beautiful gowns jewels he says i don't see you that way anymore i don't see you as the homeless drunken beggar i don't see you that way anymore you are mine i'm telling you The guy that was three minutes ago, the drunken beggar who is now 
in the king's palace, he's not going to go run out to the street. He's not going to go and go, man, I loved it back in the gutter. Free gift of righteousness. Beloved, that revelation will keep us living righteously. With grateful hearts, not trying to earn it, but out of a heart of gratitude. He made him who knew no sin. To be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God, let's just stand. revelation to us this morning. Release revelation. Release revelation. Free gift of righteousness. Release revelation. God, take us out of that performance mentality trying to gain our own righteousness. salvation is a lamp that burns. Release revelation that's on our soul right now, I ask. Take us out of works mentalities. Let us comprehend with grateful hearts this free gift of righteousness. Oh, yeah. God, I pray that we live like it. Revelation of it. 